My text this Lord's Day is from Micah chapter 6, verse 10. Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is abominable? Not only, dear ones, should hypocrisy in all of its many and varied forms be revolting to us because it is revolting to Christ, as we saw in Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, last Lord's Day. But, dear ones, hypocrisy should be revolting to us as well because hypocrisy is filled with many destructive consequences. Make no mistake, dear ones, if we sow the seeds of insincerity and merely going through the motions of our faith, worship, and practice, we will reap the harvest of self-deception, wherein we may be led to believe what is false, of disinterestedness in growing in the knowledge and grace of Christ, of dullness in hearing Christ speak to us by His Word and His Spirit, of a man-centered orientation wherein the applause of man is more important to us than the applause of God. And finally, we may reap the harvest of a nauseating discontentment with all the many blessings that God has poured out upon us. Consider, dear ones, how... This harvest of hypocrisy was reaped in the life of Balaam, who for the riches offered to him by Balak, king of Moab, manifested his insincerity by seeking ways to lead Israel into sin. Korah demonstrated his hypocrisy in not being content with his place his calling, which God had given to him within Israel, but sought to have leadership and power and authority within Israel. He coveted that authority and power. King Saul's hypocrisy was evidenced in deluding himself into actually believing that he could usurp the office of the ministry in offering sacrifices to God that which God had not called him to, yet he could usurp because he was the king. The hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira was seen in their lying to Peter that they had sold their property and given a larger portion than was actually the case. And why did they do so? They did so in order to receive the applause of men. They did not want to be behind since everybody else was doing it. Hypocrisy manifested itself in simply receiving the applause of men and going through the motions. Believers, dear ones, believers also manifested times of hypocrisy and continue to manifest times of hypocrisy. As when David sought the peace of God while continuing in his unrepentant sin of having taken another man's wife and then having her husband killed. Hypocrisy in the life of a believer as well. Even Peter 
bore the fruit of hypocrisy, when for the applause of men he ate with the Jews and refused to eat with the Gentiles. Although a true Christian cannot be entirely given over to hypocrisy, so as to be called a hypocrite, nevertheless, every true Christian may commit sins and does commit various sins of hypocrisy. For this reason, we must watch and pray that we enter not into temptation. The consequences of hypocrisy are indeed devastating in our own life and in the life of others, as we shall see from our text this Lord's Day. The main uh, points, dear ones, from our text this Lord's Day are as follows. First of all, the Lord knows our heart. Chapter 6 of Micah, verse 9. Secondly, the Lord unmasks hypocrisy. Chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And verse 16. And thirdly, the Lord brings severe consequences for hypocrisy. Chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. Let us consider then the first main point, dear ones. The Lord knows our heart. Micah moves from declaring in chapter 6, verse 8, the graces of the Holy Spirit that are manifested in varying degrees in the life of one who knows, loves, and trusts the Lord in sincerity and truth. You remember those graces that are manifested in one who is sincere in his faith toward Jesus Christ. First of all, Micah 6.8 says, He is just. He is a man that is characterized by integrity, honesty, and truth. Secondly, he loves mercy. He is a man who delights in helping others wherever there are legitimate needs. He doesn't have to be forced to do so. He delights in it. He looks for the opportunity to show mercy. And thirdly, he walks humbly with his God. He is a man that exalts not in himself, not in his own works, not in his own righteousness, but rather he exalts in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the righteousness of Christ. He exalts in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the cross of Christ. He considers nothing too heavy of a burden to bear for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the humble man. These are graces, dear ones, that are foreign and alien to the hypocrite. Such sincerity of faith from the heart is in fact impossible for the hypocrite. Now, as we continue, Micah proceeds in chapter 6, verse 9, to press home to Israel that it was no mere man that brought this charge of hypocritical covenant-breaking against them. Consider what Micah says in chapter 6, verse 9. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. 
Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? You see, dear ones, it is indeed the voice of the, of the Lord who cries out to Israel and pleads with them with a loud voice through the voice of His prophet to turn from all their hypocrisy and to turn in all sincerity to the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace the Lord their God. Israel of old should not have turned a deaf ear to the word of the Lord simply because it was brought by a very weak and frail messenger, even the prophet Micah. They should have still recognized the voice of the Lord coming through the voice of Micah. Nor ought God's people today to turn a deaf ear to God's word simply because the sermon isn't delivered in a particular style of preaching or simply because the sermon isn't brought by a particular kind of personality in the preacher. For what is most important is not the style or the personality of the messenger, but the faithfulness of the message that is communicated. The faithfulness. Is the Word of God faithfully preached and applied by the power of God's Spirit to the hearts of men, women, and children? That's what we should be asking ourselves, seeking from faithful gospel preaching. Dear ones, if you have not come today consciously anticipating that God Himself is going to be speaking to you through the reading and through the preaching of His Word, then I would submit that you have drifted into a hypocritical state of indifference in listening to God's Word preached, which in fact raises many red flags in other areas of your life because hypocrisy will not simply manifest itself in one area, but it will manifest itself in other areas as well. If you haven't come to hear God today, but rather simply you've come to hear me, then you need to repent of all such hypocrisy. Micah says, the man of wisdom will hear the Lord speak through his messenger. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ through faithful preaching and they follow that voice of the Lord Jesus Christ as they compare what is said unto the infallible standard of God's word. They say, God is speaking. I must follow. But since Israel will not hear the word of the Lord through his prophet here in Micah chapter 6, then the Lord says they must hear it through the rod of affliction and chastisement which the Lord will bring upon them by means of their enemies. Notice what he says again at the end of verse 9. Hear ye the rod and who hath appointed it. If you won't hear the, the gentle, faithful, caring proclamation of God's prophets as they come, beseeching, imploring you as God's people. And God says, hear ye the rod. 
because the rod will get your attention. And I've appointed it, God says. I'm the one who has appointed the rod. I may use other of my servants to bring that rod of affliction, but it is the rod that you will hear. And you should know the voice of the Lord even through the rod. Notice what the Lord says through Isaiah in this regard in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. It is indeed true that the Lord as a general rule begins with the gentler reproof, correction, instruction, and pleading as a tender father with us, his children. But then, if we turn a deaf ear, if we become mired in hypocrisy and simply going through the motions of our religion, he will turn to more severe measures. Beloved, it is the Lord himself who cries out to you today and who exposes the secrets of your heart to this feeble and frail messenger. It is God who speaks even through weak vessels. Psalm 44, verses 20 and 21 speak of how the Lord knows the very secrets of our heart. If we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. We can't hide those things from the Lord. Hypocrisy may be hidden from everybody else, but it's not hidden from God, dear ones. The Lord knows. We cannot run and hide from the Lord, for everything is laid bare before His all-penetrating eye. Again, the Lord says through His Apostle in Hebrews chapter 4, concerning the, the Word of God and the ministry of the Word in our lives, for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Oh, dear ones, the importance of having a sincere heart before the Lord, a clear conscience before God. Nothing in this world, dear ones, is more important than a clear conscience before God. Jesus Christ has purchased that clear conscience for you. 
the expense of his own life. God help us to appeal to him for that clear conscience so that we walk in all sincerity in all that we do as unto the Lord. <clears throat> the second main point is this. The Lord unmasks hypocrisy. The Lord asks in chapter 6, verse 10, Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? This is a question that anticipates a positive answer. Yes. Yes, after all this time in which the Lord has sent His prophets to instruct, correct, and reprove the people of Israel for their double-dealing, with one another. Still, they continue to accumulate by fraud and by deception the treasures of wickedness. They continue to bring into their bosom and into their house that which they have gotten by, by deception, by lying, by cheating, by stealing, by not exercising integrity and honesty with their fellow man. The Lord says, in effect, Do you think I will rejoice in your many sacrifices? Do you think I will rejoice and take delight in your outward worship when you deal so dishonestly with one another? That's hypocrisy. The Lord knows, dear ones, the hearts of all men and asks the question, yet knowing the answer. He knows what's in our heart. The Lord then goes on to a second question in chapter 6, verse 11. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? The Lord is getting into the very business practices. God cares about how we conduct our business, dear ones. He cares that we are honest in all of our transactions, honest in our speech, honest in our actions. Not just with brethren, but with those who are not Christians as well. The Lord, through this question, shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights this question anticipates a negative answer. No, I shall not count them pure toward me in their worship. Regardless of how perfect their outward conformity to the law of God may be, I do not count them to be pure in the worship that they offer to me. You see, dear ones, if you can lie, steal, and cheat in your vocation and calling, and yet think everything is fine when you approach the Lord God in worship. Then you treat God as one of those from whom you have stolen. And you believe that you can get away even with dishonesty before the Lord. Just as you've gotten away with dishonesty with your neighbor. You brought God down 
to the level of man thinking he won't catch you. Your neighbor didn't. God won't. Let's make God basically just like your neighbor, a man who doesn't know all. But God will not be mocked. God will not be deceived, dear ones, with such hypocrisy. For if we cannot love our neighbor and deal in integrity with him whom we can see, then we cannot love God and deal in integrity with him whom we cannot see. It won't happen. Dishonesty, insincerity, and breaking covenant with our neighbor will not be confined simply then to one's neighbor, but will certainly manifest itself in one's relationship with the Lord God as well. Beloved, if the Lord is not your silent partner in business, if you run your business as if God does not see or hear all that you do in your work with others, if you think you can cheat your employer or your client and that you have merely shown by so doing worldly wisdom, then you are acting as if God doesn't see what's going on or even worse, as if God doesn't exist. That's hypocrisy. You see, we can very easily talk the talk about how we are also to love our brethren. It's very easy to make statements and declarations about how we love our brethren. But when our actions fail to measure up to our words, again, we are manifesting hypocrisy. Are we willing to sacrifice our own comfort, our own time, our own resources for brethren who are in need? Are we those who give lip service to loving the brethren, but yet we fail to earnestly pray for the brethren, not only those within our own congregation, but for those who are outside of our congregation as well? Beloved, love is not merely expressed in words. It is also evidenced in deeds. We are to love not only in word, but in deed. Israel of old manifested her hypocrisy in the way she treated her brethren. And the Lord unmasks here her hypocrisy and our own. But not only was Israel's hypocrisy evidenced in the way each one treated their neighbor, but also in the way each one treated God in their worship. For the worship of God had become perverted and corrupted by various man-made innovations. Look what Micah says in chapter 6, verse 16. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the works of the house of Ahab, and ye walk in their counsels, that I should make thee a desolation, and the inhabitants thereof, and hissing. Therefore ye shall bear the reproach of my people. I think, very briefly, just a little bit of background is necessary at the mention of Omri and Ahab. 
You see, the kingdom of Israel was once united as one kingdom, as one nation, under the reigns of of David and under the reign of of Solomon, David's son. However, when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, came to the throne, the ten tribes of Israel in the north followed Jeroboam, while the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin followed the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. Jeroboam, the scripture teaches us, introduced into Israel's worship various man-made inventions for political purposes. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 33, listen to what was going on in the heart of Jeroboam in making various kinds of innovations to the worship of God. It says, So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Earlier in the chapter, it tells us that he was seeking to, to keep North, the northern tribes of Israel in Israel rather than going down to Jerusalem to worship. And so he introduced these various types of innovations into the worship of God. New holy days, not ordained by God. A new priesthood, not ordained by God. New sacrifices, not ordained by God. Various types of things that Jeroboam altered and changed in the worship of God. From that point on, the scripture looks on Jeroboam as it measures all the kings that come after Jeroboam in the the northern nation of Israel. They are measured according to Jeroboam. You'll find this phrase oft repeated. And they followed in the steps. So their heart was after the heart of Jeroboam. This is true of Omri in 1 Kings chapter 16, who was one of the kings that followed in Israel after Jeroboam. Not immediately following, but thereafter. 1 Kings chapter 16 says this concerning Omri. Verses 25 and 26. But Omri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all that were before him, for he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam. Jeroboam devised worship after his own heart, according to his own will. Things that God had not authorized in his word. Omri walked in the same paths as Jeroboam. Consider Omri's son, Ahab, later on in that same chapter, 1 Kings 16. Note verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took 
to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. This is the legacy of Omri and Ahab, the very ones that Micah says that Israel and Judah were following in the paths of. I would have you note another place in the Scripture which speaks of this worship of Israel so that you understand again how God feels about and what he thinks about worship that is invented by mere man and brought into his sanctuary. In Amos chapter 5, if you'd like to look there with me, Amos 5, beginning with verse 21, we find these words. God speaking says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them, neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. You see, it wasn't that Israel, this is spoken to the northern kingdom of Israel, it wasn't that Israel wasn't offering sacrifices to God. It wasn't that they didn't have solemn holy days that they celebrated unto God. It's the fact that they altered and changed the ones that God had ordained and authorized in His Word. They were offering to Him their own sacrifices of mere will worship. And God says, I hate and despise what you're bringing to me. He doesn't say, you're not any longer my people. But he says, I hate and despise your sacrifices and your offerings. Because first of all, you're bringing to me what I didn't authorize. And second of all, because your wickedness, your insincerity of heart is manifested by how you treat your brethren. In fact, we find in verse 23 of Amos, Chapter 5, notice what they had introduced into worship. God says, Take thou away from the noise of take take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. Perhaps again, this these are songs that they had introduced, that they had written themselves. Not the psalms that we find in the, in, in the Psalter, but their own songs. He, he says, Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. Notice what he says in chapter 6 of Amos, verse 5. That chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. They had introduced, invented their own instruments. Not once that David had authorized by the Holy Spirit, but their own instruments. God says, take them away. 
I despise them. I don't want your songs. I don't want your instruments. I want the ones that I ordained. Bring me those sacrifices. Bring me that praise. Dear ones, if we do not approach the Lord through and only through the work of Jesus Christ and bring to the Lord Christ's righteousness, if we do not approach the Lord with sincere hearts of faith, love, and gratitude for all that the Lord God has done for us, if we do not approach the Lord bringing only those acts of worship which He has authorized in His Word, the Lord says, He hates our worship. He hates our worship. We cannot make mere assumptions that our worship is pleasing to God. We cannot fall back upon mere assumptions. We must be convinced that such is the case from the testimony of God's Word. We must be sure because God has declared He finds the sacrifices, the worship and the offerings we bring unto Him acceptable because He has said so in His Word. Whatsoever is not a faith, Romans 14.23 says, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. Otherwise, we have introduced that which is superstitious and idolatrous into the worship of God, just like Israel of old. All superstitious worship is that which literally, superstitious means that which stands above. All superstitious worship is that which stands above God's law, above God's word, above God's authorization. That's superstition. To bring to God what He has not authorized and commanded is superstition. This as well is hypocrisy. For it assumes, regardless of the good intentions of those who offer it to God, that He will be pleased with that which He has not prescribed for us to bring to Him in worship. You see, dear ones, it's not only pagans that bring idolatrous and superstitious worship to God, for here the Lord calls those who bring Him such worship, His people. In Micah 6, verse 3, Micah 6, Verse 16, he calls them his people. Yes, even those churches that declare themselves to be Presbyterian and Reformed have fallen away from purity in worship and into superstitious worship by offering the Lord what he has not authorized in the New Covenant. Whether uninspired hymns of men, whether instrumental accompaniment, whether the use of images in worship like crosses, representations of the Trinity, whether a lamb, a shepherd, or a dove, parts of a service where the congregation merely watches what's going on up here when they should be participating, like having choirs or special music, whether dancing, whether performing skits, bringing into the church as well the celebration of various days that God never ordained in His Word, like Christmas or Easter or Pentecost, to be celebrated at this time. All such acts in worship 
are superstitious standing above the authorization of God and our hypocrisy, for they believe, those who practice it, believe that such acts are acceptable to God without God specifically authorizing it. The last main point, dear ones, is this, this Lord's Day. The Lord brings severe consequences for hypocrisy. Verses 13 through 15. Follow with me there the word of the Lord. Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, and making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat, but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee. And thou shalt take hold, but shalt not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil and sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. Beloved, the Lord will not long tolerate hypocrisy in the lives of those who profess to be his people. The Lord will not just patiently forever endure hypocrisy in our lives. His love for us is in fact shown in revealing to us our hypocrisy and chastening us for our good, for our well-being. Upon Israel of old, the Lord first threatens to make them sick and desolate. Micah 6.13 All the wealth, all the comfort, all the enjoyment they have unjustly swallowed by their greed and fraud and deception will become the means by which they will become desperately sick and made desolate by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. The Lord's bride, Israel, gloried in her wealth. She gloried in her own beauty. She gloried in her comfortable lifestyle. And it would be the love for those very things that God would use to bring about her downfall. How often God uses that which we allow to become an idol in our own lives to bring about our own chastening, our own discipline, to show us we cannot turn our affections from the Lord without suffering grave consequences. That which replaces Christ as our first love is sure to be, dear ones, our downfall. Whether it be our family as our first love, or our health, or our possessions, our pleasure. Whether it be our intelligence, our gifts, or talents. Whether it be our job, or our reputation, or success. That's essentially the message of the Lord to Israel in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Whatever you've trusted in, whatever you've looked for peace, contentment, and happiness in, rather than finding it in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, it will be that that will lead you further and further away from the Lord. 
and bring God's chastening rod into your life. That's the way the Lord uses even the idols of our life to teach us that we cannot follow them. You may be filled with food, with riches, with pleasure, with many family members, but they will not mark it down. They will not bring true satisfaction and contentment to the soul. God gives us all these blessings so that we can enjoy Him more. So we can enjoy the blessings He gives us. But we cannot make them our first love. Only Christ, dear ones, only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy that for which our souls truly yearn. In Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? See, the things of this world, they satisfy not, God says. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear and come unto me, and your soul shall live. Your soul will be truly satisfied if you come in sincerity unto the Lord. One of the sins that most people seem to despise more than any other sin in the lives of others, interestingly enough, is hypocrisy. Don't we despise that when we see that in people's lives? What a hypocrite, we may say. How it bothers us when we see the pretense of people pretending to be something that we know that they are not. And yet are we as critical of the hypocrisy in our own lives? Do we see all too clearly the hypocrisy of others but conveniently overlook our own hypocrisy? I ask you, dear ones, do you really want to see the hypocrisy in your own life? Do you want to see it so that you can be rid of it? Do you desire that from the bottom of your heart so that you can have a sincere and genuine faith in Christ? That is where true repentance must begin, with that desire. In conclusion... I want to leave you with some helps and aids that I have found so beneficial in dealing with hypocrisy in my own life. Very quickly, four things to leave with you. To avoid hypocrisy. To be aware of hypocrisy in your own life. First of all, think often about your own death. Strangely enough, think often about your own death. For we need to be reminded that we will not live long in these mortal bodies and that all that we enjoy in this life will soon pass away. If the things of this life have become what we have trusted in, what we have found 
our enjoyment and our pleasure. And if that's where our heart has been, if that's where our affections have been, death will end it all. Soon this life will vanish away altogether. How can we afford, therefore, to replace the eternal Christ with that which will soon perish? How can we afford, dear ones, to play games with God and to go through the mere motions of faith in light of our own approaching death? And sooner than any of us may realize. Second of all, think often about the final judgment. Dear ones, the Lord sees all that is in our hearts. He sees it right now. But there is coming a day when all that is hidden in our hearts from others will be revealed and uncovered for all to see. There's coming a day when the secrets of our heart will be made known, God says. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, we find these words from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. The day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, all that we have done, whether good or bad, will be made known. Now we who know Christ, even though what we have done in the flesh, whether good or bad, will be made known, it will only demonstrate the mercy and grace of God that we have been saved by the grace of God. But yet, all that we and hidden in our heart, all the hypocrisy of our soul will be made known. We can't forever hide it, dear ones. Why try to do so now then? Why not simply be honest with God, show integrity, and say, Lord, Thou dost know my heart. Give to me sincerity of heart. Let me not be divided in my affections toward all the things of the kingdom of Christ. Let me serve with everything that is within me, thee and thy kingdom. We might liken hypocrisy with God to a wife who is cherishing in her mind, in her heart, and in her affections, though never comes out outwardly, other loves that are in her life that are more important to her than her husband. Other lovers. That's what hypocrisy is to God. We're cherishing things in our heart that are more important to us than God. I doubt that any husband here would take great pleasure in knowing that were the case. Nor any wife that would take great pleasure in knowing that were the case. Yet we do it all the time in our hypocrisy with God. Is it so easy to see how we despise it in, in our own lives? But we can't see and understand how it, how it displeases the Lord our God. The third thing, if we would deal with hypocrisy in our lives, think often about your need of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot deal with the sin of hypocrisy, dear ones, without Christ. For without Christ you can do nothing. Only He is free of hypocrisy. Only He is the way, the truth, and the life. 
And no man can come to the Father but through Him. All of us are so prone to hypocrisy. But you know, the Lord Jesus died to deliver us from that sin as well. Call upon Him. Earnestly and sincerely call upon Him and do all. Seek throughout the day to remind yourself consciously a reality check. Am I doing what I'm doing to the glory of Christ? Stop what you're doing. And just periodically, throughout the day, am I doing what I'm doing to the glory of Christ? Have I forgotten Christ and what I'm doing? Think often about your need of Christ. And finally, think often about all the many reasons you have to be thankful to the Lord and to praise Him. Thankfulness, dear ones, cannot reside in the same heart with hypocrisy at the same time. A heart that is filled with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord is a heart that is purged hypocrisy from it. Be filled continuously throughout the day. Be uh, in the course of various activities. Be singing the praise to God. Be meditating upon your praise to God. Be thinking about all you have to be thankful for and what God has saved and rescued you from how He has answered so many of your prayers, how He has been with you to provide for you, how He is with your forefathers, how He has brought you to the place where you are now. God has never forsaken you, dear ones. Never once, and He will not do so. Hypocrisy cannot live in the heart of one who gives praise and thanks to the Lord his God. And thus, dear ones, Let us cry out to the Father that He would deliver us from all hypocrisy, that we might serve Him with a full heart. Please stand with me in prayer. Our God, Thou art our Redeemer our provider. Thou art our shield, our high tower. Thou art our refuge, our strength. Thou art our salvation, our righteousness, our justification and sanctification. Thou art our glory. Father, Thou art all that we need. And Father, we confess our hypocrisy as a congregation before Thee now. Search each of our hearts, O Lord. Cause us to see that hypocrisy is hiding things from Thee. But when, Father, we seek to be faithful, though we sin against Thee, it is not hypocrisy to to merely sin. It is hypocrisy to, to sin and to seek to hide it. To seek to live in a way as if the sin doesn't exist. To simply go through the motions of of worship and obedience in our lives. That is hypocrisy. But God, help us to see that when we sincerely come to Thee as we have sinned, that, Lord, we are in all sincerity availing ourselves of the mercy and grace of Christ which is given to all who love Thee and approach Thee in faith. We pray, Father, that Thou would that Thou would heal us, 
Keep us from all self-delusion, discontentment. Keep us, Father, from indifference and apathy in our Christian life. May we be an example of those, Father, who love Thee with a whole heart. We pray, Father, that Thou would use us in Thy kingdom to, to tell forth the glorious praise of our Savior to all of the world. We ask, Lord, these things, trusting only in the arm of Christ, only in His righteousness. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.